0: We'll be in Amos chapter 9 today, starting in verse 1. Concluding the study of Amos, which has been very cool, very relevant. He was a sheep breeder and a harvester, God called to speak against the northern kingdom of Israel to warn them of certain judgment that was coming. And a purpose behind purposes behind God revealing this wasn't like to to taunt them about what was going to happen and something they couldn't change, but that they would repent, that they would return to God, that they would be saved. And at the time, there was such prosperity in Israel, it was kind of like uh, the people who heard the words of Amos, it was like a person who feels at, at peak fitness being told after a routine scan that you have advanced cardiovascular disease. And like, you need to take some very... You need to make some massive changes of your lifestyle to prevent this this uh, certain medical episode. Like, your life is on the line. And a lot of people did not listen to what he said. And these were God's people. They had been, the, the land had been corrupted through idolatry, oppression, and greed. And they thought, because of all their sacrifices and assembling on holy days, that they were on great terms with God. That God was quite pleased with them, having chosen them. But... Just because they were God's people, it did not exclude them from the consequences of sin. And on their own, they were without hope. They were facing death, but they had hope in God, and that's a hope that we cling to, being called by his name. And God would use the Assyrians to cut down his people, to thresh them, to sift them, just like a a farmer would harvest and cut down a crop. And we read that in in Samaria, the capital in 722 the Assyrians did sack Samaria and they did destroy the northern kingdom but there was a small remnant there was a group that was preserved by God and it was not to destroy them this destruction it was to restore them because they had wandered from God they had ceased following him and I, I was thinking about a parent disciplining their child and and we discipline our children for bad behavior, right? If, if they've done something wrong for their good, we'll discipline them. But can you imagine how our consequences, the consequences we choose to enforce would be ramped up if we knew their thoughts and their intent and their motive all along leading up to that one external act that we see in discipline? Like, but God knew that. He, he had a perfect knowledge of these people, where they were at, why they said what they said, how they grumbled, how they murmured and complained. And we're like, what? Like, We hear about that other thing that makes us concerned. Well, God knew it all. His concern was for their future, for their hope and salvation. So what, what a, a great God we serve. How gracious that in an instant, a hardened, obstinate sinner can be saved, can be changed, can be forgiven, can have a new life. That people destined for destruction, they can receive salvation. They can be accepted into the family of God and have a new destination by his grace. And, and we can know all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Those who love God and we're living proof of that. So praise him. Amos chapter 9 starting at verse 1. I saw the Lord standing by the altar and he said, strike the doorposts that the thresholds may shake and break them on the heads of them all. I will slay the last of them with the sword. He who flees from them shall not get away and he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven from there I will bring them down and though they hide themselves on top of Carmel from there I will search and take them though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea from there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them though they shall go though they go into captivity before their enemies from there I will command the sword and it shall slay them I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good the context of this passage Uh, Amos had been rebuked in chapter 7 because he was prophesying against the king and against Bethel uh, well against Israel in Bethel and the high priest says hey cut that out go home and eat bread there and then in chapter 8 there's a, a mention of the shrines in Samaria, Dan and Beersheba and so it's like God is now he has this fifth vision of God standing next to the altar of these shrines and he says, strike the doorposts. And you, if you know how buildings are made uh, or framed, the doorpost has a lot of, uh, those studs go all the way to the, the roof. They're supporting. So if you knock down those supporting pillars, and if you think building with stones, that's a, you have the, stu- the the pillars going up and the lintel going across the top, and that supports the roof. So if you knock those down, the whole structure is just going to fall and collapse. And so he says, knock it down, have that structure collapse on the heads of those who are there. It's like the place where they were sacrificing their own children to these idols. That's the place where they would meet their end. And they could not escape. There was no way to run from God. There was no way to hide from him. He says, you could dig into Sheol, but I'm going to find you. You could climb up to heaven. I'll bring you down. You could scale Mount Carmel, the place where God proved his supremacy when Elijah called down fire from heaven, Um, but you would be discovered that if you were even to swim to the dark, crushing depths of the sea, well, the serpent's going to find you. I'm going to command him to bite you. So there's no getting away from it. It, you, You might think you can elude me or get away, but you can't. You're condemned by your sin. You're vulnerable before me. I know everything about you. You have no escape from me. And this passage reminds me of what David said in Psalm 139, right? Where he says in 139, 7 and 8, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. That can be terrifying or it can be comforting depending on your relationship with God, right? If, you're, if you believe that um, you're under judgment, well, then God knowing exactly where you are and where you're going would strike fear into our hearts. But if, if he is on our side, if we are on his side and he's our protector and our provider, well, that gives us great confidence, right? That he's gonna provide for me wherever I go, wherever I'm taken. He is gonna supply my needs. That I don't have to worry about anything. And when people are taking vengeance against me, he's going to take it personally. He's going to see that the wicked deeds are returned upon their head. And I'll be preserved. I'll be safe. What comfort it is to know that God loves us. And he won't leave or forsake us. And he's for us if we're for him. And we don't have to take vengeance when we're wrong. And we can know that he's going to protect us and provide for us. But when we sin against God, who is our who can be our advocate then if we sin against him without repentance? You know, if, if I disobeyed my dad, he was a disciplinarian. I was not wanting to be caught by him. I was not wanting to be found out because when it was found out, it was very clear what was going to be happening. I was in trouble, and being in trouble would make you almost tremble because you knew you're in trouble and just having to go to that neutral room for discipline you were like oh it's something in your heart that just quakes right just sinks now for those of us who are getting older maybe you haven't felt that for a while but you can remember it maybe that schoolyard bully or your parent or someone talked to you and straightened you out that feeling is not a great feeling i needed it though at the time um you know, what hope do we have in hiding from God or running from God or denying our guilt when he has us dead to rights? In a court case, the, the presenting of the evidence, it can either implicate or exonerate the accused. If you're innocent and you know you're innocent of the crime, all, you want as much evidence presented as possible before an honest judge and jury... So because you're like, hey, I've got nothing to hide. I want the truth to come out. I want everyone to know what really happened. And I'm not, my only concern is that the, the facts are gonna be distorted in this case, but really, I have nothing to hide. That's a great place to be. On the other hand, if you know you're guilty, you're gonna try to suppress the evidence. You're gonna want to have things thrown out of court on a technicality so that you don't have to face the justice that your sin or your crime deserves under law. Now, God's justice is totally unique to the justice system in Australia or across the world because he's the judge, and he doesn't need to do any investigation at all because he's also the eyewitness of everything, not just what happens on the outside. And he doesn't know just half the story or a part of the story. He knows it all from beginning to end. He's completely aware of the intentions of people, the motives, what motivated you to say what you said. So he's not just focused on the externals, but he looks at the heart. He's the law giver. So he doesn't act on precedent, like, well, in that case, I did this and that, but now in this case, we're going to do things. no. He doesn't have to appeal to that. He appeals to his justice, his righteousness, his holiness. And it's an unchanging, perfect standard. And he always gets it right. And we always are wrong. Like naturally, right? In our flesh, there's no good thing. There's no potential loopholes to exploit. There's no uh, compromises. There's no posting bail. It's like righteous or sinful. And we don't have a hope. And see, the issue was God's people were thinking they were going to elude him. They were going to escape judgment because of their relationship with him. Because they were were God's chosen. So therefore, the law of sin and death did not apply to them. But God's saying, you're wrong. It does apply to you. And I'll see to it. You who are assembling in these shrines, they're going to come down on top of you. You're guilty of sin. There will be hell to pay. There's no appeals or retrials. It's, it's over for you, unless you repent. Amos 9, verse 5. The Lord God of hosts, who touches the earth and it melts, all who dwell there mourn. All of it shall swell like the river and subside like the river of Egypt. He who builds his layers in the sky and has founded his strata on, in the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Amos is very fond of using the term the Lord God, um, the sovereign, self-existent, almighty God, the, the master and of, of all things, the creator, he has, he has all authority over the physical realm, the spiritual realm, every spirit over all time. And the warriors of the Assyrians, they had nothing on God. These armies that you would hear their chariots coming and the, the war cries and people would fight shriek in terror because they knew of the the mercilessness of the Assyrians and how no one had been able to stand against them. And people were quaking at the thought of the Assyrians coming. Can you imagine God just touching down and the earth melting like wax? Like if you're going to run before an army or a band of, you know, bandits, they're coming, these marauders coming to steal, um, Sand melts at 1,700 Celsius, and it's like, he's on your trail, and he knows exactly where you are, and there's no defense from him. He is the almighty Lord God. When the Nile flooded, people fled from their homes to avoid the flood, but what happens if, if it's the hills melting as wax because the presence of God is coming? It's like, this is like on a whole nother level of God's power and his authority. Shouldn't we respect and fear this God? Micah 1, 3 and 4, it says, For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split like wax before fire, like waters poured down a steep place. It's like, wow. That is impressive. Like To to go to the high places of the earth, it takes months and years of preparation and training and equipment to, uh, to acclimatize to the altitude. But God just treads on those high places like nothing. And then when he comes, it's like he just melts the mountains with his presence. And if that's not exp- impressive enough, it speaks of God building his layers in the sky. This was written long before scientists discovered the names of of these layers, the layers of the Earth's atmosphere, and I was surprised when this actually was discovered. In 1902, there was a German and a French meteorologist who, around the same time, had been conducting experiments, so they weren't collaborating, but they were sending up balloons and instruments, and they realized that, oh, the the pressures are different at these levels, and so they came up with the troposphere and the stratosphere, so they were both credited with discovering it, because it was around the same time. So there's five layers that they have uh, discovered. The troposphere that's where almost all weather occurs, that's from eight to 14 Ks. Um, the stratosphere goes to 50 Ks, that's where the ozone layer is and it scatters all the ultraviolet radiation. Uh, the meso- mesosphere, it extends to 85 Ks, that's where meteors will burn up when they enter the atmosphere. Uh, The thermosphere, it goes to 600 k's. That's the layer that most satellites are deployed. Interestingly enough, the International Space Station is around 400 meters, so it's a very low orbit. Um, And the exosphere, that's the upper limit of our atmosphere. It goes about uh, 10,000 k's um, above our planet. So it's like God, he built these things that are so far away. How could you build that? How could you make that? How could you make it so functional when it doesn't, like, it just blows my mind. I'm not able to fathom the things God does. And then he's like, and he's also built his strata on the earth where you could cut a rock or some, uh, there's been erosion and you can see the different layers of soil that's there. And he's created the water cycle to take the water from the sea and to deposit it on fresh land, uh, fresh water on land for man and beast. And uh, Proverbs 21.30, it says, there is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. God has revealed himself to us, but there's no counsel against him. There's no scheme. There's no engineering that we can evade him or elude him to overthrow his rule. You cannot do it. Because he holds all of that. He created all of it. He controls all of it. Everything is under his... Um, jurisdiction and he says the soul that i'm telling you guys the soul that sins will surely die and there's no way to to engineer your way out of that it's it's like gravity on earth when you're on earth that is a law that's in effect and nothing that we do can change that you can jump off a building and say that you're impervious to gravity but Time will show otherwise. <clears throat> Amos 9, 7. Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me, O children of Israel, says the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold the eyes of the Lord, God, are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. For surely I will, I will command and will sift the house of Israel among all nations. As grain is sifted in a sieve, yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say the calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. The privilege of being chosen by God, of their forefathers making a covenant with God that did not save them from punishment For sin they refused to repent of. And when God warned them about judgment, they say, oh no, that's not coming to us. You've got it wrong, Amos. And those in Ethiopia, the Cushites, that's the word used in the Hebrew, they lived in the Horn of Africa. They were seen by Israel as a distant land. Like, okay, these are foreign people. They're a distant land. And and they're outside the covenantal blessing and the promises of God because they're foreigners. They're, They're out of... They're not covered by the covenant that God has made with us. But he says, you're kind of like them to me as far as the way you see them as being outside the covenant. You have departed from the covenant. You're not with me. You've been against me and you've departed from me. You're the one sinful nation under the curse of sin. All those curses in the covenant, you're under them because you've refused to repent. And the care that God showed towards Israel, he says, I've shown that care to the Ethiopians, to the Cushites, to the Philistines and the Syrians. God had relocated them over the years. So God was gracious even to Gentile nations. And he says, I've been gracious to you and I've been gracious to them. So there's no preferential treatment here. You see these other nations as as being under judgment and deserving judgment. And in Amos chapter 1, he spoke of both these, the Philistines and the Syrians, that he would judge. But he went on to spend a lot of time trying to communicate with his people that they too were facing judgment for their sin. Samaria would fall. Their palaces would be destroyed. But there's a bit of a shift here. Do you see it? Where God says, I'm not going to, to the nation, it's going to be destroyed. But the people, a few of them will be preserved. I'm going to preserve the house of Jacob. I'm gonna save people. The nation will fall, but people will be saved. And if you turn back with me to Amos five, fourteen, God turns a, a perhaps in a previous chapter into a promise here. And that's really neat. That there was an opportunity, he said, there's a chance for grace, there's a chance for hope, but then he's going to promise that yes, I will do that. Amos five, fourteen, fifteen. It says, seek good and not evil that you may live. So the Lord God of hosts will be with you as you have spoken. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. And God's saying, I am gracious to the remnant. That there's, there's going to be a remnant? Yes, and I will be gracious to them. You can, you can know this. So they had that assurance from God that they would suffer. Even those who were preserved, they would be sifted. Just like a farmer sifts grain of wheat to to eat and to plant. God was not willing for that smallest grain to be lost. He's like that insignificant person, that child amongst the the nation who fears me, I will sift them out. I will preserve them. I will save them. The ones who, who love me, I will do it. Many would go into captivity. Many would fall by the sword. Those who rejected the idea that judgment was coming, they would all fall. But those who loved God, they would be spared. God, he he knows all the stars by name. And he's like, I'm not gonna lose sight. I'm not gonna forget even about the littlest one who loves me. Have you ever thought about what it would be like to be like a day in the life of harvested grain? You know, you've grown up on a stalk, It's pretty comfortable, you have this nice protective husk protecting you from from everything, and suddenly you're cut down. You're kind of thrown roughly into a pile. Then you're threshed, and the threshing process is you'd either have oxen walk all over you so that the husk breaks off, or they'd have a, a sled that has these nails on it, and it would be dragged across you over and over and over until that protective husk is gone and you're all exposed, and then the sifting, you know, you're thrown up in the air to separate the chaff from the wheat. And then you've, and then you, you put it in a big sieve and you start you know, jumbling it around. And you're like, you ever felt like that? Where it's just, you are in the sieve. You are being beaten up. You don't know why you're feeling this way. And what is the point of this? Like, what purpose does this serve? I was quite content where I was on that stock." a bruising process, it's stress, it's upheaval, it's confusion. And perhaps those Israelites would feel like God was being unnecessarily rough on them, those who trusted God, those who followed after him. But that sifting, it has to do with purifying. There was a separation that needed to take place between the the husk and the rubbish and the stuff that was inedible from the grain that would be planted and eaten and ground into flour. It was a process of selecting those who loved him. But they had to go through the sifting. Some were sifted and thrown out. Others were sifted and they were saved. I really love what Spurgeon says about this sifting. He says, I think I see you, poor believer, tossed about like that wheat, up and down, right and left, in the sieve and in the air, never resting. Perhaps it is suggested to you, God is very angry with me. No, the farmer is not angry with his wheat when he casts it up and down in the sieve, and neither is God angry with you. This you shall see one day when the light shall show that love ruled in all your griefs. Love ruled in all your griefs. Can you identify with that sifted grain? When we humble ourselves and repent, when we seek the Lord, He's faithful and just to forgive us. He'll wash us clean. David wrote in Psalm 7, 10 through 12, my defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. God sifted David. It was for his salvation. It was for his sanctification. He was making him more. He was preparing him. It wasn't just to salvage an old life, but to give him a new life. And really, that's what God does when he sifts us. It's not just to salvage, make the best out of you know, our dregs. He, he gives us new life. He makes us a new person when we repent and believe the gospel. God's will is to save. So if you were just to read the very beginning of Amos chapter 9, you'd get a very skewed image of God's grace and who he is. You wouldn't see any grace there, but you don't know the background if you just read that of what had been done to provoke that and the salvation that was offered for those who turned and sought the Lord. To persist in sin, to imagine that you're basically good compared to God, that is a death sentence. Amos 9, verse 11, On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. God first roared through Amos against his people and the nations, but after judgment, God promised to restore them. And he adopts a very kind and gentle tone, doesn't he? And like, this is what I'm gonna do. The, just, the judgment's over now. Now is a time for restoration. And he promises to raise up a tabernacle of David, so the house of David, the tent of David, to shelter them once again. Uh, remember that when, after Solomon passed, his son Rehoboam took the throne. And the 10 tribes to the north they came to him and said, well, you know, your dad really taxed us like crazy. Can you lighten our load? We'll serve you. And he co- he consulted with his friends and the elders. And the elders said, oh, you know, go easy on them. You'll have these people forever. But his friends said, hey, you got to show them who's boss. Be tough on them. So he was tough on them. And uh, they said, what share do we have in Jesse? To your tents, O Israel. So they left the covering of David and And that family and the blessing that God had, because God had made a promise to David, he would have a son who was a king who would be on the throne forever, pointing to the Messiah. And they said, we don't want any part of that. David or his house will have nothing to do with it. And so they went to the north, made Jeroboam king. Jeroboam, he almost right away started this idolatrous shrine in Bethel and Dan, which turned people's hearts away from God but god said that he is going to put he's going to rebuild that tent over them he's going to bring them back in these people that he 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 saved he sifted out and in 2 samuel 7:13 it said this was the promise god made to david he shall build a house for my name and i will establish the throne of his kingdom forever so he's going to build a house and this branch that god had promised would spring from the root of David. He is Jesus, our Messiah. We read of him in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with justice and judgment from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The sending of the Messiah, this establishment of his kingdom, it's contingent upon God alone. It was not contingent upon his people earning it or doing something. Like it has nothing to do with whether the people repented or not. God was going to send a Messiah regardless because it's based upon him. He says, I, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. Just like Amos said that God's going to bring destruction in Samaria and bring these shrines down, I am going to send a Messiah. I'm going to send a Savior. And he's going to have that everlasting kingdom. Did you notice what God promised in Amos 9, 11, and 12? The layers in the sky, they didn't have scientific names placed on them yet. But there was foreshadowing of the gospel that God also had not explained. It had not been revealed yet what God was going to do, that he was going to provide a savior, that he was going to become a man, that he was going to establish that kingdom through the person of Jesus Christ in the hearts of people and physically during the millennium. But he talks about Edom and the Gentiles so the promise of salvation is not just for the Jews but for all people, anyone who comes to Jesus. And that's so cool. This tent would be raised over and it says cover the remnant of Edom and all Gentiles called by God's name. So Gentiles who are called after God's name. This it was unthinkable that you would it'd be one thing for God to save the nation of Israel, but he's saying the remnant of Edom. Now, Edom, that comes from Esau. And the people of Edom did not get along. They were always hostile and opposed to Israel and opposed to God. But God had a remnant amongst those people. And he says, I'm gonna put my tent, my shelter over them and all those Gentiles called by my name. So God's ultimate plan was for the people of Edom who feared God, the Gentiles outside the commonwealth of Israel who were aliens of the promises of God, that they were called by his name and he was going to bring them in with those that he sifted out of Samaria and Judah. After Jesus identified himself as the good shepherd, he says this in John ten sixteen. He says, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. There will be one flock and one shepherd. So the found, forgiven, the redeemed sheep of Christ's fold, it's not determined by ethnicity or family heritage, but by those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the ones that he will establish this new kingdom with. I mean, how awesome. Go ahead and turn there. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4 through 6. Just for the sake of time, I'm, I'm kind of quoting from the middle of a passage. But just to show that this whole idea, it, it must have rocked the mindset of the folks who heard this. It was bad enough to hear that judgment was coming. But wild and amazing to hear that pe- the remnant of Edom and the Gentiles called by his name, he would also save and draw to himself. That, and this is the revelation that God's saying, this wasn't known, but now it has been revealed. Ephesians 3, verse 4, "...which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets." that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. What acceptance, what grace, that something that the people, it was only alluded to in the day of Amos, we have seen fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And that we are fellow heirs of the same body, that God's taken, like the Jew and Gentile, That middle wall of separation has been broken down. You've been a one in Jesus, and he's now the head. And you're all members to do my will, empowered by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Turn to Acts chapter 15, verse 13. One challenge the early church faced was to walk in love towards people, well, all people with their varied backgrounds because you had Jews and Gentiles, slaves and masters, Some were Orthodox Jews who walked in the ways of the laws of Moses and they walked in the the traditional way according to uh, even as Jesus did. Jesus kept the law. So there were these Jewish believers who kept the law and thought that was a good thing to do. And the law is good. And so they imposed the law on the Gentiles. Like you need to be circumcised. You need to keep the law of Moses. But God had not called the Gentiles to live as Jews. God said it's, well, we see it throughout scripture that they, as a Jew, you could live as a Jew. That's perfectly fine. You could keep the law, but you're not righteous because you kept the law. You're righteous by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's the same for the Gentile, that we ought to walk in love towards one another. And that's why they came up with those uh, those uh, commands on how to behave themselves so they could show love to Jews when they didn't know the culture or the law so there was a group of Jewish leaders they gathered together in Jerusalem to debate what should be done about this like what's the right thing to do concerning all these Gentiles and the Jews and the friction that's between them James quotes Amos in Acts 15 verse 13 after they had become silent James answered saying men and brethren listen to me Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who does all these things. Salvation is not just for the Jews. It's for all through Jesus Christ. There's no exclusions. You're not left out. You can come to Jesus and have salvation and be part of his kingdom. When we choose him, we we discover we are chosen. Jesus taught that um, his choosers are his chosen. So you go, how do I know if I'm chosen by God? Well, if you choose him, you know you are says that in John fifteen sixteen, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. So even our choosing isn't our doing, though it's cooperation with God. It's by grace that we choose him. To be chosen by God is a delightful, amazing thing. Amos 9, verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Amos foretold of Israel being sifted out from among the nations, that they would be restored to their inheritance of land that God had given them, and that they would be under the tabernacle in that covering of the house of David, who we know is Christ. Uh, that the ruins would be rebuilt, that the desolate places would be again inhabited. Now, after the fall of that northern kingdom, uh, this, the Jerusalem fell years later, and uh, so the northern kingdom to the Assyrians, the southern kingdom to Babylon, and the temple was raised. Now, after 70 years of captivity in Babylon, a group of of devout Jews came back to Jerusalem, rebuilt the temple. Now, God has, it's like this, this promise to bring back his people has been fulfilled a couple of times, at least, and still more to come. Because after that, um... The second temple was built. We know in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple and the, the Jews were largely dispersed. But in 1948, there has been a large regathering. From 1948, there's been over three million Jews that have returned to Israel and they have their own land again. And it's a land that um, it doesn't look like it would be, but it's extremely productive and fruitful that they are a major player in the world with innovations and fruitfulness and exports. You can, they can pretty much go toe-to-toe with anybody on a few things. Now, the ultimate fulfillment of this passage, where it talks about the hills, you know, the, the people overtaking each other, people bumping into each other that should never, the harvester and the, the planter, those two should never come together, but they're like, their timing's all destroyed because they have so much to harvest that it's taking them too long. And they're, hey, it's season to be planting, but they're not done harvesting yet. That, that remains in the future when Jesus comes back and, and establishes his throne in Jerusalem. And there's that millennial reign that he will have. So judgment would bring pestilence and famine and sword. But God would bring a transformation, right? These pas- this passage here in verses 13 through 15, this is totally different than drought or pestilence or famine. This is abundance and sweetness. Um, it's a day of enduring fruitfulness, security, where there is safety. Plowing usually occurred in October, And reapers should have been finished in May. So May, June, July, August, September, October. That's six months. Six months of harvesting. And they're still not done. And they're like, hey, we'd like to get to work now. But there was too much to harvest. He says, the mountains would flow with the juice of grapes that had not had an opportunity to be harvested. And so it's like eroding the hillsides. And a hillside's not really where you would plant grapes. You would plant them on a flatter area. Um, It wouldn't be on a mountainous area. But it's like in unexpected places, there's going to be abundance. And so much that it's not going to even have time to be harvested. And uh, that, that kind of fruitfulness only comes from God. Now, one thing that's interesting, though, we talk about God's kingdom and the work that's done there. We can have this idea that when we're born again and we trust in Christ, that he does all the work independent of our effort. But the fact is, plowing and reaping and harvesting and treading out the grain and the wine, that involves work. It involves labor, specific. You can't just lie in bed and expect the the grapes to be harvested that day. Like Someone has to physically get up and go out there and get them. That fruitfulness is by God's grace. But the reaping, the treading of the grapes, the sowing the seed, it still needs to be done. And that's really fitting for us. That there is work to do in the kingdom of God. Even in the millennial reign, when Jesus is on the throne, there will be work to be done. There will be harvesting to do. I mean, how much... Some people are really exceptional gardeners, put a lot of time and effort into it, have very fruitful plots. But how rewarding would it be? And I think those who are into gardening can, can answer this question best. How great it would be to have trees and flowers and fruit that, that produces abundantly without having to battle pests or mildew, theft, or water restrictions. Like it's just, you don't have to deal with that anymore. And that, that's, a, that's in the future for us. Thankfully, we have that future to look forward to. Um, The law of Moses, you think about what the people, when they thought of blessings, what did they consider? And if you read through the law, you'll see almost all the blessings had to do with life on earth now. Abundant harvest, rain in season, land, protection, provision, there was very little about the eternal state or spiritual things. It was almost all about you know, your family will be blessed, you'll have abundant harvests, the rain will fall. Uh, and that, that inheritance is actually a plot of land that you live on that's passed from generation to generation. But while we do receive sp- uh, physical blessings from God, God has opened a way for us to receive spiritual blessings and to appreciate them. As being better than big harvests and uh, fruitful um, planting; those are the kind of things that endure. Because Jesus said, you know, don't don't set up your tre- don't store up treasures on earth, where rust corrupts and moths destroy, but put your treasure in heaven. That's the treasure where it endures. That's where the rewards are that last. We're called to good works, and we're called not to worry. Like, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, what you're going to do tomorrow. Because in God, you'll find all that you need for life and godliness for now and for forever. And that abundance that he supplies, that that is our birthright as children of God. Jesus said that in Matthew 6, 31. He says, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. It's in seeking God alone that we have fruitfulness, and not just fruit that you eat or can spoil if you don't get to it fast enough, or that rots on the vine. Not that kind of fruit, but a fruit that endures, a fruit that has an eternal reward and benefit. Could you please turn, last verse in John 15, verse 12. Because this kind of fruitfulness is what God has called us to. And it's fruit that we ought to value more than apples and mangoes and pineapples or peaches. I really like peaches this time of year. It's like summer peach cobbler, yes. Amazing, better than all that, better than grapes. John 15, 12, this is what God wants to have produced in your life. We want our trees to produce fruit. We want our our shrubs to produce leaves. But this is what God wants you to produce since you're in him. John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. God has sifted us. He has chosen us so that his love would be manifested in our lives. That's primarily it. That his love would be evident. And you are in him. That the the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the very first one, love. That that would be, and it would be shown towards one another. Loving others like Jesus, does that take effort and self-sacrifice? Yeah. It just doesn't happen automatically. We need to choose to love. And that's why he exhorts us to. And in obedience to him, he makes our, that burden easy and light when we trust him. And when we fall and we cry out to God, he will restore. And in choosing to seek Jesus and his righteousness, we'll find all our needs met. You say, I can't love like that. And he's... Like, yeah, I, he knows, he knows we can't. That's why he's given us the capacity by his grace to love. And so may that be the fruit that is shown in our lives, the fruit of repentance, the fruit of faith, the fruit of love, that that would be running down the hillsides of your life, that that would be, the, the harvesters would be bumping into the reapers, I mean, into the planters, because there's just too much, love that's being produced and we know that's not possible right you can't love too much Uh, we love ourselves too much praise the lord in him our needs are met let's pray thank you lord that you are great and good that you desire us to be fruitful and you've made us to be fruitful you've chosen us to be fruitful you've equipped us to be fruitful you have sifted us out of the nations lord as gentiles called by your name and I pray, Father, if we have any doubt that you've, cho- you've chosen us or not, may we choose you today and keep choosing you day after day, moment after moment. May we choose your way to seek you, to walk in righteousness, to put in effort and sacrifice for your glory. Not that we can pray be praised, but so you would receive the honor and glory you deserve. Lord, I pray that you would make our lives fruitful that you would make us receptive to your word, not as those to whom Amos spoke, who largely dismissed him and and uh, wanted him to be quiet. Lord, I pray that your word would be implanted in our hearts and be fruitful, that we would love as you loved us, as you continue to love us. Lord, pour out your spirit upon us, that your love would be evident, that you would be praised, and and the sweetness of your love would just flood throughout this nation. Lord, we pray for your people and we pray for those who don't yet know you. May we love one another as you love us. May we serve one another with compassion and grace and mercy so that you would be glorified as the, and we would be the planting of the Lord, flourishing where you've placed us. And we thank you, Lord, that you are faithful and that we can count on you. We are so grateful, Lord. I am grateful to call you Father and to have Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.